Good morning, church family. Please keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 23. You can keep me honest. Well, if you really want to get to know someone, pay attention to what gets them fired up. Grown men are going to cry tonight based on what happens with a little brown ball in Las Vegas carried by other grown men wearing tights. Some grown women will probably cry too. Then there's another subset of people who are cheering for a particular airplane to land in Las Vegas by kickoff. And they might shed their own tears of joy or sorrow, depending on its timeliness. If you want to really get to know someone, pay attention to what gets them fired up. We've been going through the book of Matthew as a church for all these months because we want to get to know someone. We want to see Jesus of Nazareth, the most influential human who has ever lived. We want to see him for who he really is because we believe it has everything to do with who we really are and what really matters in life. In Matthew 23, we see Jesus fired up. We see his heart with a particular kind of clarity. I think it's safe to see that in Matthew safe to say that in Matthew 23, we see what Jesus hates. What do you think Jesus hates? If you had to make a list, I wonder maybe without what we just read in mind, I wonder what would be on your list if someone just said, tell me what Jesus hates. I'm not saying that Matthew 23 gives us an exhaustive list of everything Jesus hates, but I am saying it gives us an essential list. If you don't know this list, you probably don't know Jesus very well. If you don't know this list, you probably don't know the heart of God very well. And that's exactly the accusation that Jesus was making against the people who claimed to know the heart of God better than anyone else. They claimed to be closer to the heart of God than everybody else. So we would do well to pay attention today to what Jesus hates. If we could boil it down to one word, I don't think we could do better than the one word we hear on Jesus' lips six times in this chapter. Six times earlier in Matthew, aimed at the same people. And then one more time, in chapter 24, for good measure. If we want to boil down to one word what Jesus hates, I think we could safely say Jesus hates hypocrisy. If there's one thing we can say with confidence, it's that Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. Now listen, Jesus encountered all kinds of sin and sinners when he walked the earth. Nobody got an earful like these guys did from Jesus. Nobody was on the receiving end of such harsh, sharp words 
as the religious hypocrites of Jesus' day. He called them hypocrites and he told them why. So before we get to the why, let's just unpack that word real quick. Most of us have a general sense that hypocrisy means you say one thing, but then you do another. But the word hypocrite itself, at its most basic level, actually means stage player, actor, someone who wears a mask or a costume and puts on a show. Jesus is calling the religious leaders of his day costumed stage players. They're putting on a show and it's all make-believe. Earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 6, when Jesus refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites for the first time, he calls them out for how extremely showy they are when they do certain good things like giving to the poor. For all to see, or praying long, loud prayers for all to hear, or disfiguring their faces when they fast so everyone can see how miserable and holy they are. They're stage players, they're playing a part, putting on a show, living for the next applause. And Jesus has rebuked their hypocrisy little by little along the way. But here, towards the end of his life, in the last days of Jesus' earthly life, he unleashes his full and final verdict as a warning that he no doubt wants to echo throughout the centuries. So Lord Jesus, would you give us ears to hear? Now, I'm going to highlight seven things Jesus hates, according to Matthew 23. We could probably parse out more than that, but seven felt sufficiently faithful and ambitious. So seven things that Jesus hates, according to Matthew 23. We'll move through the text and highlight them as we go. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. First thing that Jesus hates is when leaders don't practice what they preach. Now this might actually be the first thing we think of when we think of the word hypocrisy. People whose words and actions don't line up. The scribes and Pharisees would teach people what the scriptures say at their best. They would do that but then their lives were totally out of step with what they were teaching. When Jesus says, do and observe what they tell you, we understand that Jesus doesn't mean all the extra added stuff that they're adding to scriptures. All their man-made traditions and rules. You don't need to obey those. Jesus has already made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. But to the degree that these teachers faithfully say what's already been said, as recorded in scripture, listen to them. It's the word of God. Actually, I think this is kind of important for us as a quick pause because we live in a day of cancel culture and way too many leaders that fall flat on their faces. It can be hard to know what to think about the teaching we've received once we realize that the teacher was a hypocrite. 
The faith of many true believers has been rocked because of hypocritical leadership in the church. Jesus hates this. He hates when people speak in his name and then make a mockery of him with their lives. But what I think is helpful for us about these words is that Jesus is making a clear distinction between the teaching and the teacher. As disorienting as it can be, when leaders we once looked up to fall into disgrace, Jesus encourages us to cling to the truth even if the teacher proves untrustworthy. To the degree that somebody faithfully teaches us the word of God, what God has already said, we don't need to throw out the teaching just because the teacher is a hypocrite. As the great poet Propaganda once said, God can use crooked sticks to make straight lines. Hypocritical leaders don't deserve our loyalty, but God's word does. There's a lot of people out there making the mistake of thinking that since there's so many hypocritical Christians, so many hypocritical teachers, so much hypocritical Christianity out there, they make the mistake of thinking there must not be such thing as real Christianity at all. There must not be such thing as real Christians out there. Now, just as the existence of counterfeit money doesn't prove that there's no such thing as real money, so also the existence of counterfeit Christianity does not prove there's no such thing as real Christianity. It just proves that we need discernment. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to here. If you hate hypocritical leadership, you're in good company. So does Jesus. But don't miss this. In verse 3, Jesus not only says, look out for hypocritical leaders. He says, and don't be like them. That's the first thing Jesus hates. Second thing Jesus hates. Number two, Jesus hates self-serving leadership. Now we're going to look at verses 4 through 10 here. I'm not going to read it all, but he highlights two components of self-serving leadership. First, he says self-serving leaders lay burdens on people, but they're unwilling to do anything to lighten the load. We know that the Pharisees had a long history of adding rules and traditions on top of God's word that made people's lives unnecessarily burdensome. They got mad at Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Don't try to be holier than the Bible. These guys' ministry was marked by weighing people down, burying them under guilt, and offering no way out from under it. That's not gospel leadership. That's not good news. Sin and guilt must be taken seriously, but when the solution offered is stop it, or do better, or do more, or try harder, honest seekers are left hopeless. And Jesus defies hopelessness. The other characteristic Jesus highlights of self-serving leaders is that they do everything they can to exalt themselves over everyone else. 
He says they do all their good deeds so everyone can see how wonderfully holy they are. They're giving, they're praying, they're fasting. He says their phylacteries and fringes are out of control, much like many of you. Phylacteries are these leather cases that they would put uh, scripture in and then tie them around parts of their body. It was their way of trying to obey Deuteronomy 11, which said, take God's word to heart, bind it on your hands and between your eyes. Pharisees had a problem with figures of speech, it would seem. (laughs) But anything that would set them apart as holier than thou, they were all for it. So their phylacteries were huge. They want to sit in the seats of honor wherever they go. They want everyone to know and refer to them with titles of honor. And Jesus rejects it like Matumbo. Not in my kingdom. It's a really bad 90s basketball joke. He says, not in my kingdom. No one in my kingdom is higher or holier than anyone else. You're all brothers. You're all family. You're all on the same level. He's not saying you can't call your dad, dad anymore. And he's not saying you'll never need anyone to teach you anything anymore. What he's saying is, in fact, he's, we know he's not saying nobody should teach you anymore. You don't need any more teachers because one of the last things he says to his disciples in the Great Commission is go make disciples and teach them, right? But what does he say to teach them? Everything I've commanded you. So this is what he means. He says there's no new teaching that you're going to need to go and find from some fancy teacher out there. There's no new truth out there that I haven't already embodied. If anyone tries to teach you things that I haven't already said, you shouldn't listen to them. And his further point is, no more putting leaders on a pedestal. No more self-exalting, self-important leadership. You don't need another mediator between you and God. I'm that, Jesus says. There's no pope, no priest, no pastor that you need to revere and honor as great. No teacher you need to follow and obey unless they're simply calling you to follow and obey me. Here's what leadership looks like in my kingdom, Jesus says. Servanthood. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Christian leadership looks like serving others not serving yourself. And then Jesus closes these words to the crowds and his disciples with words that they had surely heard him say countless times before. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's one of those mantras of the kingdom. An immutable law of the kingdom of heaven. Self-serving leaders be warned. Don't follow them. Don't be like them. Third thing Jesus hates. Jesus hates Christ-denying discipleship. He hates Christ-denying discipleship. The charge is in verse 13. He says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Well, how is that happening? Ever since Jesus showed up, the gospel he's been preaching goes like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Entrance into the kingdom starts by turning the other way. 
Starts by changing your mind. Starts by stopping going your way, trusting in your own righteousness, and turning and going another way. That's entrance into the kingdom. Lay aside self-made righteousness. Lay aside your own attempts to get right with God through your own works. And come to me that you may have life, Jesus says. Scribes and Pharisees would not come to Jesus for entrance into the kingdom, nor would they repent from their way of righteousness. And Jesus says, you're slamming the door in people's faces by rejecting me. And they're making disciples after their own image. Rather than entering the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, you're multiplying children for hell. There are a million disciple makers out there, aren't there, friends, right now? Million disciple makers in our culture, in our world. Influencers, podcasters, preachers, authors, counselors, people with microphones, book deals, and followers. The question we must always ask whenever we are giving our attention to someone who claims they can help us is, is this person leading me to trust and treasure Jesus Christ more? Is this person leading me towards greater trust and greater treasuring of Jesus Christ? Or are they trying to offer me a different kind of hope? Are they making followers of Jesus or are they just making followers of themselves? When we mistakenly hitch ourselves to Christ-denying disciple-makers, we're in great danger of being led in the opposite direction of Jesus' kingdom. Much like the Pharisees were leading their converts, where you place your hope is the most important thing about you. Be very careful where you let other people lead you to put your hope. Jesus hates Christ-denying discipleship. Fourth thing Jesus hates is religious games. Verses 16 through 22 might be a little hard for us to get our minds around. It was for me this week. All this talk of taking oaths by this or that or the other thing. I don't really do that much. But apparently the Pharisees have come up with this system in which some oaths count more than others. Loopholes. Ridiculous excuses for not having to keep your word. If you swear by the gold of the temple, you've got to follow through. But if all you did was swear by the temple, that doesn't really mean anything. Reminds me of being on the playground as a kid. Right? My fingers were crossed. Ah, you got me. Interestingly, this is the place where Jesus deviates from calling them hypocrites, and instead three times he calls them blind. This is another charge Jesus has often brought against the leaders. They claim to see clearly, but they're actually blind. And they're playing childish games like kids on a playground. Jesus already dismantled this ridiculous invention back in the Sermon on the Mount when he simply taught people, just let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. It doesn't 
need to be much more complicated than that. Jesus isn't into playing religious games. Choose your own morality. It's simply another expression of stage playing. You can keep up appearances of looking like a person of integrity as long as you're constantly changing the rules of what actually matters and means something. We're living in a world where truth is very shifty. Whatever's most convenient for you can be called your truth. As long as you live according to what's true for you, no one can tell you you're wrong. Jesus says there actually is a standard for truth, and you don't get to set it. Here's the fifth thing Jesus hates, according to Matthew 23. Jesus hates lightweight obedience. Look at verse 23. He says, You hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So we could also call this selective obedience or even evasive obedience. They're either wrongly evaluating what matters to God or they're simply choosing the most showy and least sacrificial forms of obedience. Majoring in the minors, you could say. They're scrupulous in their tithing. Down to the smallest herbs in the garden. What painstaking holiness. And yet the judge of all the earth is not impressed. They've missed the very heart of the law. They've missed the very heart of God. They're not wrong for tithing, Jesus says. Keep doing that. But the law, as Jesus summarizes it, has two indivisible parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, mint, dill, cumin. And the second is the same in substance, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't divide these, Jesus says. Your attitude towards others reveals your attitude towards God. Don't hide behind lightweight obedience. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul will write in Romans 13. Weightier matters of the law, as Jesus describes it, are things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Things that are closest to God's heart. Like caring for the poor and the needy. Like helping the weak, protecting the vulnerable, fighting for the oppressed, seeking out the lost and lonely, comforting those who mourn. The religion of the Pharisees looks like meticulous tithing alone in your garden with blinders on to the needs around you. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, and I quote James 1.27, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Which is one way of saying it looks like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Very easy for us, brothers and sisters, to neglect the the weightier matters of the law by trifling 
over matters of lightweight or selective obedience. What a ridiculous picture Jesus paints of this. He says, you're straining out the gnat and swallowing a camel. You're giving meticulous attention to the smallest details and you're missing the heart of God. Jesus hates lightweight obedience. Sixth thing Jesus hates, Jesus hates superficial religion. He hates superficial religion. Verses 25 through 28 is what we're looking at here. He says it's the kind of religion that's only concerned with outward appearances, not heart realities. Now, this is what every coffee shop I've ever been to does to me. I'm a marginalized tea drinker. I don't think coffee shops even see me or acknowledge that I'm alive. They assume everyone in the world drinks coffee, so they don't really care about how clean the inside of their mugs are. It's just going to get filled with dark, cover-everything coffee. It's only when a purist comes in and orders tea that their negligence is spotted. The mug looks nice and clean on the outside. I've never had a problem with that. It's only when I lift it to my lips that I can see beneath the liquid gold these dark brown stains and smudges on the inside of the cup. Disgusting. (laughs) You're not clean, Jesus says. You're not clean just because you look good on the outside. Just because you clean up well. Just because you can smile. You're not alive to God, Jesus says, just because you look beautiful to other people. Says a tomb, no matter how clean and sparkly it is, still has dead people inside. We can put on whatever kind of show we want in front of other people. We can wear masks, play a part, and fool everyone, but we can't fool God. He sees our hearts with perfect clarity. He sees beneath the surface. He sees beneath the superficial religion. He sees beyond all our best attempts to clean ourselves up and impress one another. Acting like we've got it all put together, but he's not impressed and he's not fooled. Greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, lawlessness, it's all laid bare to his eyes. Pharisees were masters of superficial religion. And Jesus hates it. He hates our attempts to sidestep our need for grace. Our proud insistence that we can clean ourselves up on our own. If we could actually clean up ourselves on our own, if we could actually make ourselves right with God by our own doings, then as Paul says in Galatians 2, then Jesus died for no purpose. 
The greatest mistake any person could ever make is thinking they can scrub themselves clean apart from Jesus. So Jesus hates superficial religion. Seventh thing that Jesus hates. Jesus hates I would neverism. I didn't really know what else to call it. Jesus hates I would neverism. I'm not going to read all of verses 29 through 36 again, but the gist of it is that Jesus says that the Pharisees would look back on the violent, idolatrous history of their people and they would comfort themselves by saying, we never would have acted like that. If we were alive back then, we never would have killed those righteous prophets just for calling us to repentance. We never would have rejected God's word if it came to us so clearly. I would never... They were very confident in their ability to see the past with great clarity. All the while, as Jesus has pointed out repeatedly, they're blind to what's happening right in front of them. And they're blind to the part they are about to play in the ultimate shedding of righteous blood. And they're hiding behind eyewood neverism. They are playing a part in an unfolding drama, Jesus tells them. Just not the part they think. They think better of themselves than they ought. There's something instructive in there for us, isn't there? We read the scriptures. We can see the past with a degree of clarity that can tempt us towards I would neverism, toward an overconfidence in our own wisdom or strength or faithfulness. We make much of ourselves and little of the grace of God. Without which, of course, none of us would be able to avoid the guilt rightly and the condemnation rightly deserved by the long line of hypocrites that we would otherwise find ourselves in. A more fitting attitude for those who put no confidence in themselves would be along the lines of what I heard an English preacher from like 500 years ago who once was standing and he watched a line of condemned prisoners walking to their death and he simply said, There but for the grace of God go I. He says, that would be me if it weren't for the grace of God in my life. That would be me if God's grace didn't show up and save me from myself. I'm the Pharisee. I'm the hypocrite. I'm the blind man who thinks he sees. Brothers and sisters, apart from the grace of God, I see nothing different or better in me than what we see in these woeful scribes and Pharisees. I've talked better than I've lived for years. My flesh is still tempted to preach what I don't practice. To try to make you think I'm better than I really am. I can be tempted to use my place of leadership for self-serving purposes. To make a name for myself and make sure that people look up to me. I like when people like me. And left to myself, I would gladly make disciples for myself rather than Christ. 
I'm not above the temptation to play religious games, to make up whatever rules are most convenient for me and to live by whatever truth demands the least of me. I've settled for lightweight obedience more times than I'd care to admit. Whatever makes me look good and costs me very little, count me in. Superficial religion was my game. And I'm still tempted to hide what's real so that you might be impressed with me. I've been infected with I would neverism for years. And not just when I read the Bible, but even when I look around at the people around me. I'm a recovering Pharisee, you guys. I don't read Matthew 23 like it's all about them back then. This is what Jesus saved me from. And I need to never forget that. Praise be to God, I'm not what I once was. And even now the Spirit is transforming me little by little, more into the image of Christ. But this is my story. Maybe I'm alone in this room, but I kind of doubt it. It's not a very big step from church kid to Pharisee. Young people, look at me. This matters for you. You're not better than your peers who aren't here right now. You're not closer to God because you do the right do's and don't the right don'ts. When being a church kid is all you've ever known, it's terrifyingly easy to put on the costume, wear the mask, say the lines, and have no idea you're doing it. One of the other things Jesus said about religious hypocrites in another place is he quotes Isaiah and says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. They can say all the right things, but they don't really know me and they don't think they really need me. But Here's good news, friends, young or old. Jesus can save Pharisees. Jesus can turn religious hypocrites into sincere, repentant, grace-rejoicing children of God. Will you come to him? We've seen the heart of Jesus more clearly today in Matthew 23. We've seen what he hates. But let's keep in mind that we only hate or reject something because of our intense love for the opposite of that thing. Let's not celebrate what Jesus hates, except to the extent that we rejoice in what Jesus loves. Jesus hates when leaders don't practice what they preach, because he loves integrity and wholehearted devotion. Because that's who he is as our leader and Lord. He perfectly spoke the words of God and he perfectly walked them out, even to the point of his own death. 
Jesus hates self-serving leadership because he loves humility and servant-heartedness. Because he himself didn't come to tie up heavy burdens on us, but to take our burdens on himself. He came and invited us to take up his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus hates Christ-denying discipleship because he loves to give us himself and all that's his. He trades us his righteousness for our sin. He gives us his inheritance for our shame. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters or to have us call his father our father. Jesus hates religious games because he loves the truth. He is the truth. All that ever came out of his mouth was truth. And he said, and it's the truth that will set you free. Jesus hates lightweight obedience because he loves justice and mercy and faithfulness. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus hates superficial religion because he loves transforming people from the inside out. He came to clean us of all our uncleanness. He came to give us new hearts and to put a new spirit within us so that we might walk in his ways. And Jesus hates I would neverism because he loves gathering repentant sinners to himself. Let's not miss the closing words of this chapter when Jesus turns his words to the whole of his people. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You are not willing. This isn't Jesus having a mood swing. He's not like us, bouncing from one emotion to another. Jesus can experience righteous hatred for what's wicked, wholehearted love for what's good, and appropriate sorrow for what's lost, all at the same time in perfect harmony. And here at the end, we see Jesus' heart burning with compassion for his lost and wandering people. How often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you weren't willing. It's the burning heart of Jesus to gather his people to himself. And it's that burning heart that sent him from that conversation steadfastly on his way to a bloody cross just a few days later. Compelled by love, compelled by a motherly instinct to gather his children under his wings. Those who are willing, those who are repentant, those who are willing to take off their masks and stop hiding, those who are willing to admit they can't scrub up their own lives themselves, those who are willing to admit they're not enough and they need a redeemer, he's willing. 
Will you come? Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about two men who tried drawing near to God. First one is a Pharisee, much like the one we've been looking at today. Jesus said the Pharisee came to God very impressed with himself, confident in his own righteousness based on all that he does. And the second man was a tax collector, a notorious, dirty sinner. And he came to God, and all he could say was, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And between those two men, Jesus says, the tax collector goes home righteous that day. All he had was a repentant heart and a desperate cry for mercy, and that was enough. that's all you have today, I have good news for you. You can go home righteous today as well. If you've never had a relationship with Jesus, let the words of that tax collector be the first words between you guys in a relationship. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. If you've walked with Jesus for decades, keep coming to Jesus with empty hands. Keep coming to Jesus, hoping only in his mercy, not in what you've added to it. Trusting only and forever in the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, apart from what you do. Behold the heart of our Lord, friends. Do you see him? Do you love him? Do you love what he loves? Do you hate what he hates? There is none like him. We're going to close our service by taking the Lord's